Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We have an in-studio guest this week. Renee Stubbs is a former Grand Slam doubles champion, longtime tennis commentator, and new time, a new New York resident. Um, lives very close to our offices here in lower Manhattan now. Recent refugee to the uh, island of Manhattan. So we figured... Why not have her come by and talk a little tennis? So Renee swings by. We talk about all manner of WTA, bit of an update on Serena Williams, some interesting remarks from Renee, both about Maria Sharapova and Roger Federer. So uh, here is Renee Stubbs, everyone. Welcome to New York. Thank you, John. Good to be here. Tell us a story. You've lived in Florida and Chicago. You're Australian. How did you end up in this cow town? Why not? You know, somebody asked me the other day, why, why, why move to New York? And I said, why not? Um, I think it's a place that I've always wanted to live once in my life. And I think everybody should live once in their life in New York. It's a close-knit farming community, really. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, let's talk tennis. We have no script. You and I are just going to riff like we normally would. Um, so let's start. Chris Clary had a tweet yesterday. What gives you more excitement, men's tennis right now or women's tennis? Um, well, I'm not doing this because I'm biased, but actually women's tennis. I was um, going to say, the, the poll figures support that. So no, I, because I think that, um, you know, I, I feel like the last three Grand Slams, the women have owned those three Grand Slams. I think that they've owned the better matches. I think they had better matches at Wimbledon last year. I think they had better matches at the U.S. Open last year. And I, there's no doubt that they had the better matches at the Australian Open this year. So for me, there's been some, obviously there's no standout. There's no Roger. There's no Rafa. Of course, the stars always will sell. Um, 
um, the tickets right. and they'll always get, you know, the publicity. But for me, the different great matches that we've had, matchups that we've had between the Hallops and the Kerbers and the Wozniakis and the Hallops at the Australian Open and last year with Venus and Sloan's match in the semis and, uh, you know, Venus and Kvitova's match at the US Open and I think Conta's match with, I mean, there's just been some amazing matches over the last three Grand Slam with women's not one person dominating, obviously Serena not here or not not playing in the last 12 months, has made it sort of an open, more interesting um, tournament for the spectators. This is, oh, I mean, this is why I think men and women play off each other well. So this is always a debate, right? Do you want stars, Tiger Woods and Roger and LeBron, or do you like parody? And I mean, think of the last four majors, Ostapenko, yeah. Muguruza, yeah. Sloan yeah. and Wozniacki winning for the first time. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say, like, if you like men's and women's tennis, you have it both. Go watch Rafa and Roger, and then uh, women's tennis has this great drama. You think women's tennis suffers, though, for not having Serena, not having this this one sort of pole star right now? Um, I mean, that's that's up for debate, really, isn't it? I mean, that's up to the spectators to say, what do, what do you want? Do you want a Serena every single week dominating winning tournaments? Um, some people might say, yeah, it's awesome. If you're a Serena fan, of course you want to see her playing and dominating and doing well. But, you know, there's also a, a great deal of people that love to watch really super competitive tennis. And I think that's the thing about the last three Grand Slams for me, that the women have outshone the men. Um, and, and, you know, listen, I'm a tennis purist, so a great match is a great match right, to me, whether it's right. men or, or women. I just think the women's matches over the last three Grand Slams in particular have been absolutely spectacular. So I've liked to see that. I, you don't know. You don't know if Switzerland is going to break through in the next Grand Slam because, Halep. you know, or, or I mean, Halep's my favorite for the French. Um, just because I, I think I believe it's her best surface. I think she obviously has done well there in the past. Look, she's come so close. I would lo- maybe it's my mind or my heart wanting her to win a Grand Slam finally because I think she really deserves it. Because um, I think the Australian Open, she pretty much gave everything she possibly could and just fell short. But also on the flip side of that, I I was very happy to see Wozniacki win because I think she's one person that's obviously deserved to win a Grand Slam. And her improvement in her game is what won her the tournament. I mean, I was very adamant saying two years ago, I didn't think that Caroline would ever win a Grand Slam because she didn't have a weapon. Right. right. And you have to have, in my opinion, you have to have a weapon to win a Grand Slam. And if you look at the past, you know, champions, they've they've all improved something. Like Kerber, the year before, improved her aggressiveness. She had a great mover around the court and she could, you know, hit a million balls in and super competitive. But she didn't really go after the ball enough. But when, when she played Serena in the finals of the Australian Open, she really went after it. I mean, anything short, she went after it. And I really believe that Wozniacki improved her aggressive part of her game in the last 12 months that it was obvious for me, particularly who's seen her play so much, to see. Bigger serving, bigger bigger ground stroke power. Uh, her miles per hour on serves and on her ground strokes improved a lot. And she became super aggressive. And that's why she won the WTA finals last year. And that's why she won have, the Australian Open. Have you Open. seen that much? I mean, she, she was in here a, a few weeks ago. And it's funny. Some player, you know, Radwanska, for example, is what she is. And yeah. she can get what she wants out of her game. Now, obviously, things have, have gone a little south. But... Wozniacki, you you see her walking around. She's six feet tall. I mean, she's she's not, she's five ten. She's, she's my she's height, but she's five foot ten. Yeah. She's athletic. Yeah, she can hit the ball, and for a lot of her career, seemed to prefer defense. I can't remember seeing that where a player by choice. I mean, David Ferrer. You think of all these players, and you can tell Michael Chang to be aggressive, but there's there's a limit with her when she hits out. It was technical. 
though, with her. Oh, and really it's the same yeah. with Radwanska. Radwanska is a little bit of technical, but also, you know, she, look, uh, Agnieszka's good 5'9 as well, but she is slight. I mean, a good wind down the around the corner of this building here might blow her right, over. Right. But, um, you know, Caroline's not as slight as Agnieszka. She's a, a little bit more, a little stronger in the legs, certainly in the upper body. Um, but I, I, it was technique. She proved this wrist snap on her serve in particular. I really went after it a lot more. And I watched her doing some drills leading up in warm-ups and watching her in practice and how why she improved the wrist snap and how she improved the, the velocity on her serve. And everybody can do that. I don't understand why players don't try and add something to their serve or change their serve consistently. And hers was obvious for me to see with that wrist and snap num- and that power that and her forehand she was going after her forehand more she was not pulling out of it and opening up the left shoulder and really sort of hitting from the inside of the ball she was starting to hit more around the outside of the ball more aggressive with it I don't know why and who made her sort of really change that uh, you know that's up for debate I haven't spoken to her about it but um, it was obvious to see you know and some players you don't see that with her it was obvious um, you are well connected with the Williams camp. What's your status update on Serena? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, we, she's super busy right now, obviously with her documentary just coming out. Um, I believe she's here in New York uh, right. doing that. And, um, you know, it's hard to say, John, honestly, because, you know, two years ago, nothing drove Serena like playing and winning. And I would still say that winning and playing are, are 90, you know, there's, they're at the utmost in her mind because that's who she is and that's what she was born to do. But, you know, when you become a parent and she's obviously completely and utterly in love with this beautiful baby girl that she has and we see it on Instagram and we see she's branching out a little bit more than I... um, that I've seen her ever do in the past with this documentary and, you know, with the baby and she's taking an interest in politics and she's taking, you know, she's sort of broadening her, to me, she looks like she's broadening her outlook on life a little bit. And maybe that's, she's 36 maybe that's her husband's influence as well. Alexis is pretty, you know, worldly and very smart and he's probably introduced her to a lot of new things. And I just think her interest level for other things is starting to become part of her life. So can she get back to that single focus of winning a grand slam? We will see it at Wimbledon is where the where I will make my assessment on what you think I think. That the French is sort of I think the French is going to be tough. Card, right? um, I think it's a bit of a wild card for her just because it's always been the most difficult surface for her to yeah. dominate on. Um, not to say that she obviously can't because she's won it. Um, but but I think Wimbledon is where we're going to see where she's really physically at because I don't think she was physically ready at all to come back when she did. I just think she was desperate to play again because she loves the game so much and you know, she lo- she loves her fans and her fans are desperate to have her back. And look, she's seeing people win tournaments that she probably thinks, what? what? Well, that's, that's what I think the big question is, right? It's yeah. just what's, what's the motivation now and does she get upset when she sees less accomplished players taking these big trophies? Well, I'm sure. Or, I mean, or is it? I mean, I, I think the I – mean, I, th- I think th- this is not a knee injury, right? I mean, there's a, a physical comeback and also, like you mentioned, there's there's a whole new – Emotional sphere that's opened up. Yeah, and also she went through a traumatic time having the baby. I mean, she's talked about that publicly now. And so that was always physically, it was always going to be difficult for her to come back. Um, You know, obviously the serve is very, very important to Serena. If she's not serving with authority and winning a lot of free points with the serve, then she has to work physically a lot harder on the on the point structure and, and winning that. So if she's not physically up to the task, and that's going to be really difficult. Um, she's, you know, when she was dominating, she was physically up to the task, but also the serve was so dominant, um, particularly, you know, at Wimbledon. 
Um, so that will be the big sign, how, how she physically is uh, serving-wise and and how that affects her mentally and physically when she goes out to play. Look, I mean, she has absolutely zero to prove to anybody in right. the whole world. Um, but I also would, you know, say that Serena's always been somebody that I've said never say never because... Um, we've seen this movie before. We've Adelaide. seen it before. And, you know, it would just be perfect to the script, wouldn't it be, if she could win another Grand Slam having had a child and go off and ride off into the sunset right. having done that. And it would be pretty incredible. No, I mean, I think, I think we talk sometimes about how you frame these situations as athletes. So you could say, boy, that the clock's ticking and you've always said that you're playing for history and isn't it an immense amount of pressure every time you go out there and Margaret Court's in your sights. You could spin that the other way and say, you're playing for nothing. I mean, this this is gravy. You're 36 years old. You're, you're a wife. You're a mother. You could retire tomorrow and you'd go down as the greatest ever. Yeah. Go out, go out there and hit the ball. Yeah. Well, easier said than done. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, when I uh, One little moment I had with uh, Serena last year or two years ago at the Australian Open after Angie Kerber came back to defend the title and Angie really struggled in the first round. She she barely got through her first round, I believe, in three sets against uh, uh, Serenko. Uh, Serenko's mm. a good player, um, but, you know, there was a, this tremendous amount of pressure now on Kerber, number one in the world, defending Australian Open champion, and she really, as we know, struggled big time in 2017 to, to have a good year. And I remember coming off the court and I said to uh, – uh, the next day I saw Serena, um, I don't know, it was in the locker room or just walking the halls, and – and I said, did you see Angie's match last night? She said, yeah. I said, it was, it was kind of hard to watch almost because you felt really sorry. I felt really sorry for her because it was all the world, the weight of the world it looked like it was on her shoulder 2017 playing that match. Aussie Open. Yes. Right. And Serena said, yeah, well, now she knows how I felt for two decades. Mm. And, you know, when Serena says something like that, because she doesn't ever, you know, talk about vulnerability or stress or anything right. like that, you know, maybe because of our friendship, but. You know, when she said that to me, I said, God, I wish people could understand that about you. The stress that has been on you for two decades to every single time that you walk on the court, just like Roger, just like Steffi back in her day and now Serena, you know, every time Rafa walks onto a clay court, the amount of, you know, everyone just thinks it's automatic and it, it's not. You know, these players are stressed out every single day to win, not to play well, to win. Right. They could play horribly, but as long as they win, that's all they care about. So for Serena, you know, to sort of say something like that, it's like, yeah. I mean, these that's why the admiration for someone like Serena is so prominent on the tour because every player knows what, not every player knows what it feels like to feel that, but some of the ones that have gone through it, the ones that have won Grand Slams, the Muguruthas, the Kerbers, you know, um, Wozniacki. Now, they all must go, my God, for two decades, Serena's yeah, been exactly. dealing with this. But someone you know? said, uh, what do they say? The first half of my career is just Learning. getting to the top, yeah. and the second half of the career is just trying to stay there. Yeah, I mean, Serena's has been, wow, here I am, world. And, you know, me and this other you know, player called Venus, you know, we came onto this, you know, with this enormous amount of press on them both. And since that moment, they've had, they've been scrutinized, they've been watched, they've been, you know, there's people that have hated them, there's people that have loved them, there's people that want them to do well. Right. And they've had to live with that for two decades. And now Serena, you know, is having to deal with this record setting, you know, accomplishments. And so, you know, the stress is huge, which is another reason why, man, maybe it's going to be hard for her to make this comeback successful right. because, boy, she's living a life that is such joy for her now with this child. So, you know, it'll be kudos if she can do it. Um, let me ask you about another player who, strangely, I don't think we mentioned her once so far. Uh, so we're recording this on Thursday. Maria Sharpova 
lost to, to Caroline Garcia mm. yesterday, two yeah. days ago. Um, two days ago, I, I believe. If my math is right, that is that is four straight defeats. Yeah. For Maria, tough draw. Tough draw, and uh, you know, you know, Saka and Wells, tough draw. Going back to the yeah. hollow, but the U.S. Open was a tough draw. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the fact remains, um, this is a player now still out of the top fifty. I mean, she's been back yeah. almost a year to the day since the suspension. What's what's going on there, and how long uh, does she turn this around, or are we seeing uh, uh, Dakota here? I think it'll be the opposite for her. I think Wimbledon, uh, excuse me, the French Open will be a bit of a tell for uh, Maria. She's obviously plays very well on red clay. Um, she's proven that in the last couple of years that she's actually been one of the more successful players um, on red clay because it gives her time to sort of set up for her big shots. And um, but you know, look, uh, she's not as as with Serena. She's not getting any younger. Uh, these players don't fear her like they do a Serena, or certainly um, they don't fear her in that respect. So. You know, she's she has struggled, but she's also, as you said, we've mentioned that she's had some pretty tough draws. You know, Osaka and now Gussie is a you know top ten caliber player who had an amazing year last year, and indoors is very good as well as is Maria. But um, yeah, I guess the questions are still have to be answered as far as how good can Maria still be. Um, I think it's disheartening for her because, you know, you put a lot of work in and she obviously is super professional about her preparation and getting out there and she's hired a new coach again, Thomas Hogstead. Gee, he gets around, doesn't he? <laughs> I is tweeted. Is there some, anyone he has not coached? I, t- I texted, uh, tweeted the other day about if you got a WTA, if you get one successful coaching job on the WTA tour, you have a you're, you have a job for life. In. You're like you're like tenure as a teacher, um, <laughs> as a coach on the tour. You just you just go from one to the it's other. Like I mean, the, the recycling. I mean, I, I, listen, I have respect for the guy. I don't want to like harp on him right. alone. There's, it's amazing. There's I mean, ten this, or this must fifteen. Be his, this must be his tenth player, though. It's crazy. I mean, and and listen. Uh, I don't think it's anything against him, but but uh, but boy, these players, you know, that bring him back around, it's always interesting because I think, you know, why get rid of him in the first right. place and if you're going to bring them back around? But uh, anyway, that's a whole different story that we can go into. But um, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see his influence over her. She obviously needed a new voice um, after listening to Sven for, th- what, three or four years, four right. or five years. Um so I don't know. It's a real big unknown. There's a lot of question marks around Maria and how physically she can handle it now. Are you uh, are you an MMA fan? I mean, co- kinda. So, I was uh, when Ronda Rousey was fighting because I just thought she was such a, I don't know, like just so polarizing. I just had to watch. Must see TV. Um, no, the re- the reason I ask you is because you know there have been a number of doping suspensions in that sport. Shocker. And shocker. <laughs> um, if I was one, in that sport, you, I would be doped up when uh, somehow. No, I mean. Sidebar, I was, and I, Ronda Rousey's very good on this point. She said, listen, we're not talking about hitting a baseball a little bit farther or throwing a couple miles an hour faster. We're talking about physical injury here. Yeah, so, yeah. so doping in this sport is serious business. Yeah, but yeah. but, but the reason I ask you that is because um, a, lot of pl- a lot of fighters come back from these suspensions. Yep. And part of it is they, they were all wronged by the system, and everyone feels as though you know they had an alibi that wasn't acknowledged. But there's this real pressure to show – the world, their fans, the other fighters, that their previous success wasn't a function of doping. And this was an administrative error. And there's a real pressure these fighters have when they come back from a doping suspension to sort of show their legitimacy and, and validate what they did previously. I think that's a factor and an added source of pressure for Maria. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who yeah. have their questions and you want to answer those totally. questions. Totally. I mean, there's no doubt about it that, you know, she hasn't had the success since coming back. Um and, you know, a lot of questions uh, for sure are going to be answered of, well, how much did it help her? 
No, I, I mean, mean that's, that's just, the, the reality is with you know, every loss. That's the reality. The whisper, yeah, that's exactly. the reality. And, you know, a tremendous amount of injuries since coming back. And, you know, a lot of people say that the meldonium certainly helps with injury recovery. And look, you know. Um, that's a lot of pressure for an athlete. It's, it's a lot of pressure on her, particularly when she is so well known and so. Uh, the, 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 as I said, with the polarizing aspect of some players um and some great champions maria is that that she is the epitome of polarization right now because people want to there are people that want to love her and bring her back and love her to be in the game because she looks she's a superstar and she's a name and um you know she's classy and she handles herself really well and there's no doubt about that like for me she's one of the best interviews that i do because she she's kind of like roger like that she's just super professional and she knows that her answers are going to make her look good or bad some players don't really get that when you do an interview with them it's a career slam it, winner hall of famer i mean this is this yeah is well it'll be interesting to see what they do with the hall of fame to be honest um with this with her um seriously i mean that's ah, a question we've never we've never been never uh, that hasn't really come up but right. but you know, there are people that absolutely hate her because of this. Um, there are a lot of players that really have no respect for her anymore. And some um, players are a little bit more forgiving. Um, and, and it wasn't on the banned substance list when she was using it. So, you know, you could argue that why does it matter? Every single player could have been on that. You know, if they'd done their research, they could have all been on Mildonium or they could have it, it, to, to, to help them. Um, so she wasn't doing anything that any other player could have done. But the problem is that... Um, you know, it was banned and she was caught. And so then the legitimacy of what she's I, done I in the past to, uh, has to be questioned, sadly. I, I also, you you know this as well as I do, that the gulf, the gap between what players said when you talk to them informally and what they said in their public statements about her, really vast. I mean, there were, there were players that said, listen, uh, she served her time and now we welcome her back. And you know that that's not how they felt. And I, I always wondered where that came from. Is it, look, some I don't want to get into Some players actually contest. do believe that. Um, I, I, we, you and I can talk offline about various players whose public statements were very different from their private ones. And I wonder if that, you're as a former player, is that, listen, I don't need the distraction and the hassle 100%. of some pitter, or is this institutionally I was told to keep no. this brand leader uh, oh, in, no. in good no, 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 no. You at think all. it's just, oh, look, no. look, Tennis, look, I don't listen, need to get in a fight. You or. know, the WTA, um, you know, is a ruling party. The ITF is a ruling party, Grand Slams. But, you know, in the end, a tennis player is their own boss. I mean, I can say whatever I want when I'm playing. I mean, th they can't keep me from a tournament. Yeah, if I'm ranked 10 in the world, yeah. you, I can say whatever I want about Maria Sharapova. And they, I, they have no rights to keep me from playing a tournament. You're not playing for an NFL team. You're not playing for an owner. You know, you're not Kellen Ka Kaepernick and getting, you know, sent off into Narnia. I mean, you literally are your own boss. Mm, right, and so right. you can say whatever you want. Now, the flip side of that is you don't want to have the extra controversy because it'll be the first question that's asked to you in every single press conference. It's like, well, what did you mean when you said that about Sharapova or Serena or, you know, Halep or whatever? It's just like, oh, God, can no, we just talk I, about the match? I also, I always thought that was something Roger, I, and I don't think it was calculating in any way. I think he's a genuinely nice guy, but I think Roger really benefited from the fact that his career has been so free of tension. There are because he's free of with tension. Players. No, but I mean, I, I think that uh, he, and again, I, I think this is to his credit. I think it's because he's an authentically good person. I don't think there's anything calculating, but there were no beefs. There were no distractions. There were no Twitter battles. There was no bad blood. Um, I think that's something that really helps athletes in individual sports. And as much as, you know, in Again, we talk about combat sports and the two fighters are trash talking and they hate each other allegedly. 
I don't think that helped performance. I think Roger. I mean, name, name me one controversy. Maybe one player who had any beef with him in, in 20 uh, I, years. I or? remember. Uh, I remember one of the two uh, matches that he lost back-to-back in, I uh, believe it was Palms, Indian Wells and Miami, when he lost to Kanyas. Kanyas, yeah. Because well, he hated Kanyas. You think that was... Because uh, of, uh, I believe it was, Kanyas was, wasn't he done with for doping? And so, uh, or there was speculation or whatever it was, um, I he, I don't think he liked him very much, and he paid the price because he lost to him. Because I think Roger is a very emotional. He doesn't look. He he doesn't look it on the court because he controls himself so beautifully. Right. But everybody knows from oh, juniors. Oh, he's very emotional. Yeah. No, from, no. But even with the, the oh I mean, crying yeah, and you exactly. know that you know. But everybody knows from juniors right. that knew him. I mean, um, his one of his first coaches, Peter Carter, who you know sadly passed away, was Australian, and he said to Dave Taylor, um, a coach at Australian coach, you should see this guy I'm working with. He's Swiss. Um, Go, it was at the juniors at the US Open in New York. He said, you got to go watch him play, but he's an absolute nutcase. Literally, those are the words that he used um, because he was just so fired up and he'd get so pissed off and throw his racket. And I mean, we've seen the video, right? And he talks about it. But he learned that for him to win and be successful, he had to curb that. And obviously, Peter was a big part of that as well. Um, but that's inside of him. You can't change that. You know, uh, there are players that just grow up, you know, like someone like a Lindsay Davenport, who you and I know really well. I mean, she, I don't think Lindsay's ever really, you know, had a hissy fit on the court ever. But she'll but she'll admit that she also, you know, probably could have been a little bit more positive. Right. But that's how she was as a kid was Roger turned it from being this like crazy nutbag to this like serene, like, God, oh, does he even get upset? Does he even sweat? But that's work for him. Right. But I mean more the personal But animus. that came out against Kanyas because he really didn't like that Looked guy. Looked across the net and you saw know, And I yeah, think yeah. he struggled with Novak a little bit early on in his career because I don't think he really loved Novak early on in his career. And I think that, that little tension inside of him actually doesn't make him play well because it's obvious. Yeah, that's my point. That's my point. Exactly. So he's right. like, all right, I don't want to have any controversy with anybody because clearly it really affects me. And I don't play my best tennis because I'm not clear. And we know the beauty of Roger is that he's so effortless so if you're effortless it means you're conflict free right. really on well, the there's court a, there's a mental clarity yeah that goes with he's that. just he's no what he's doing is he's just loving what he's doing and when he's not loving it it's because he doesn't really particularly like the person down the other end and i know there's other players that he doesn't really like that much and he struggled with them so that's one interesting thing about roger all right uh we got a few minutes and i want to ask you about this report i don't know if you've read it um the the integrity report that was released uh a few figures jumped out at me. One of them, unless this was a typo, the notion that this investigation cost more than $20 million astounds me. But the other thing, there was a line in there. I don't know. Have you, have you read this report? No, I haven't. So there was a line in there that basically you know, talked about how there were integrity issues. Most of these With the issues betting. were happening in these betting and yep. the match fixing were at yep. the lower levels. And at one point it said the 15,000 professional tennis players. 15,000? And you want to say, well, wait, 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 wait a second here. There are maybe 120 players who fans are paying to see, who are relevant, who are mm-hmm. attending the events where, where you and I will broadcast from. That is a huge underclass. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there are betting markets for tennis players whose career earnings may not be $1,000, I, I feel like the ITF and the ten, you know all, all the organizations have done a really bad job of messaging this in the sense that no doubt there's match fixing. No doubt there's a lot of betting and a lot of sort of dubious results. But if we're talking about 15,000 people in the workforce, that's a lot of people with a lot of different motivations who are galaxies removed from the players you and I are covering. 
So what's your question, basically? You, well, you want to know if think I think of, it was I worth mean, the money to do the yeah, investigation? I, mean, I don't know if you have, you have sort of top-line thoughts on this. I mean, I just I just think we really need to, before we even get into match-fixing, we really need to draw some distinctions. I, I mean, I don't know how you feel about that. You were a Wimbledon champion. When someone you see someone on an airplane said, oh, yeah, I, I was a pro tennis player. Oh, really? What did you play? <laughs> well, you know, I got a couple points. I played well, uh, yeah. a couple satellites events in Uruguay. And yeah. you want to say, like, I mean, I, a one... A, a, colleague of ours calls these people tennis hobbyists. Yeah. But I, I just think that this match fixing is it's ugly business. It's an unfortunate headline, but I just think we really need to differentiate between professional tennis players and guys who happen to be playing in a few money tournaments. Yeah, I think you should only be um categorizing yourself as a professional tennis player if you're playing full-time all year making money from it and and literally basically paying your bills and um you know if you've got another job on the side to pay your bills then you're not really a professional tennis player you're uh, somewhat trying to um you know be able to say i went and played a professional tennis event well, that's different, okay, right. than being a professional tennis was, player. So, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing. I mean, I, I do hear people, there are some people who will be like, oh, you know, people will come up to me, have you heard of, you know, Jane Smith? And I'm like, no, well, she played back in, you know, so-and-so day, and she, I think she was ranked, she played in a couple of challenge. I go, oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know every single tennis player that's ever played a professional I mean, tournament. You know, my daughter would sell her school paintings next to her lemonade stand. That doesn't mean uh, she's, a, she's a professional. I mean, I, I just professional think artist, before well, we... You know. Um, all right, real quick, we uh, we have a few minutes left. First of all, you you look out at this, and I hope you feel uh, if you feel very fortunate that you have a freelance lifestyle and don't come into an <laughs> office every day and uh, have a cubicle. Um, but I, I mean, this this whole transition post athletic career is always something that very really di- interests very difficult. me. Um, curious when you when you come into an office setting like this. What, what goes through your head? You I mean, know, this is so it's funny because different. I had a, you know, Andrea, uh, Andrea Pekovic is one of my best friends. And, you know, she uh, she had a couple of days off, um, spent a couple of days in New York and then went home. And she said, oh, I'm looking forward to actually getting back to practice and having um, a schedule. Because that's the one thing that tennis players really struggle with when they stop is that, oh, my God, what do I do? Like, I get up in the morning, I go work out for two hours, and then I, you know, I practice, and then I work out again, and I do my massage, and then all of a sudden the day has gone, right? And they feel accomplished by doing that. Whereas when you retire, it's like, uh, I mean, it sounds great to, like, not have to get out of bed at, like, 7 in the morning and go to work. But it actually becomes a little bit, like, it's almost anxiety-provoking to not have a set purpose in life when you retire, you know? And then there's some people obviously that have the money to be able to live, you know, quite a comfortable life. Some, you know, particularly on the tour, obviously go and have kids and families and believe me, their time is gone, you know, because it's picking up toddlers. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, there are some players that really do struggle big. I say majority of players really struggle with when they retire because that's why so many hang on for so long because they really don't know what they're going to do. And we're talking about retiring at, at the latest 40 Right. I mean, I quit at 40, um, but I was dabbling in um, broadcasting for pretty much my whole career because I knew that my the afterlife, I call it, you know, from retiring would happen sooner or later. And most people don't retire until they're 65 or 70. So, you know, they can't wait to do nothing in the day. But even people that that retire at 65 and 70 really struggle with not having a purpose, you know. Um, So I think that is one thing that, you know, just hearing Andrea talk about it the other day, I was like, oh, my God, you're going to suck when you retire because you're going to not have this, like, this set schedule, although she really wants to be a writer. She's going to be a writer, exactly. We're going to bring her bring it to New York and make sure that uh, she's... With their headphones and Starbucks. uh, Totally. um, But she has always 
set that in her mind that she wants to do that when she's done. And there are some players that don't ever think about the retirement part of it until it's done. And then they have this massive panic attack. But, but this must be, uh, you know, we, we are, this is an audio medium and not video. But as we look at a sea of cubicles and, you know, I have, I have a 10 o'clock meeting I've got to run to that's on my calendar. And if I don't go, there's going to be an empty seat. Um, yeah. I'm curious how this is. Your Margaret Mead uh, observing a, a strange environment. I mean, you I, I could do this twice a, uh, twice a week. I could come in and sit at a cubicle and do something twice a week, but that would probably be my maximum. We need permal answers. Um, I mean, that's, all right. that's is that not acceptable? Twice oh, yes, a week? It's, it's, it's media, not on, media definitely today. not on the weekend I because say. I do realize that as a working right. person, you know, you weekends are really important. This is why I know what TGIF really means now because as a, as a kid and as a professional tennis player, I didn't know what TGIF meant. Right. I was like, what does that mean? Thank God it's Friday. Oh, okay, the weekend for me, know, working gonna, on the weekend was, was the best the, uh, thing. No, but I was going to say the opposite that we all have these little devices, and the one nice thing about this, it gives you all sorts of flexibility. And True. I can go cover a tennis event and still, Work. whatever, edit a story or interview a can, you know. But it also means that this notion of like, up oh, the whistle blew, the Flintstone whistle blows on Friday, and we're all uh, see you for the next uh, seventy-two hours. That doesn't really happen. Um, all Maybe right. not for you. Now that uh, you know what, now that you're a fellow member of the two-one-two area code, we're going to do this again. Great. Thanks um, for having me, John. Thanks for coming in. All right. Thanks to Renee Stubbs. Uh, that was fun. Always good to have an in-studio guest here. Uh, thanks, as always, to our super fantastic producer, Jamie Lasanti. Jamie, I will bring you in since you were here uh, for this session with Renee. You know what struck me? Her remarks about Roger Federer. And I think it's really interesting to mention to Roger Federer is that you talk about great athletes. Tiger Woods, we saw LeBron James hit a buzzer beater, Kobe Bryant— Michael Jordan, what do we always say about Serena Williams? What do we always say about great athletes? They are assassins. When they compete, there is this supremacy and there is this ferocious competitiveness. You don't hear people say Roger Federer is an assassin. I always think it's interesting that he was able to achieve this level and he didn't have this, this gear of killer that we associate with so many other great athletes. Interesting to hear Renee talk about how she perceives uh, – that other players, when he doesn't have a good personal relationship, that actually takes away from his tennis. It doesn't fuel him with that extra motivation. Did, did you catch that? I did. I think he is secretly an assassin. He is a silent assassin. It's a silent assassin. Because if you think and you watch him play, there's just something when he gets into that zone, when like you get that feeling, like everyone, you're sitting in the, the stands, you're sitting in there, Everyone can feel it. Like, there's no stopping him. You know, like, there's something about when he gets in that mode. Like, he's swinging and he hits the shots and you're just like, how the hell did that go in? Or how did that, you know. Language. I'm sorry. I'll edit myself. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I just, I feel like in that way, not only do the fans feel it, you know, his coaches, maybe Federer feels it, but the opponent has to feel that, like, oh, man, like, if Federer is going to play like this today, like, you know, crap, what am I going to do? You know? Uh, so I, I feel like in that sense, um, you know, he may not be outwardly an assassin, but he does have qualities that I think have probably helped him over the years. I, I just think it, it's a fascinating case study about athletes and, and excellence in general. No, I think you're right. I mean, there's some days where it's just the, the mystery is not in who's going to win. Roger's going to win. The mystery is just how is this greatness going to come out today what shots gonna pull off today that leaves everyone breathless but I, I always think his relationship with the rest of the field is really interesting and we talk about athletes operating with some detachment and operating at a distance and I think Roger 
benefits from the exact opposite, which is being part of the community, and these are my coworkers, and you can ask him the most obscure doubles player, and he'll know his age, his country of origin, may even know some of his recent results. Uh, interesting to hear Renee talk about uh, Guillermo Cañas, long, long retired, has done a, a bunch of coaching since then. Um, as a player who got under his skin, I mean, I don't think it's any secret that Federer and Djokovic may not have uh, the, the most copacetic relationship. But to me, it's just been a fascinating dimension to Roger Federer, even with even with Nadal. I mean, I think it took Roger a while to warm up to this idea of rivalry. What do you mean I'm not supposed to like this guy? What do you mean this guy's trying to take me down? We're all just a bunch of nice guys out here hitting tennis balls. And I think for Roger, it's sort of tidier, and I think it brings out better tennis when it's a friend on the other side of the net, an adversary, but not—I mean, an opponent, but not necessarily an adversary. Anyway, um, that knowledge though spans over to the women's game too. The you know, like you said, the the doubles player and everything else. Like the fact that he, he you know, you can ask him about when on the Grand Slams and you know, on Indian Wells, things like that. A player is doing well. He he knows and he knows what's going on, which has always been kind of uh, you know admirable in that way. Yeah, but I think you talk about the women's game though. Look at—I mean, Serena Williams' record against Maria Sharapova head to head. That that is not an accident. Um, if there is some friction, if there's some personal animus between Serena and her opponent, it's going to be a long day uh, for the opponent. Renee was implying that uh, it's, it's sort of the opposite with Roger, and he doesn't play his best when there's there's friction. Um, anyway, interesting case studies, these uh, elite athletes, aren't they? Renee was great today. Renee's good, huh? Renee Stubbs, full of candor and uh, now living in lower Manhattan. So maybe she'll uh, swing by again sometime. All right. That does it for this week. You and I both have work to do. Jamie Lasanti, always a pleasure. Same here. Um, people can listen to this on. You take us out. iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and leave a review, not just a rating. Write a nice little review like you would of your favorite restaurant on Yelp. This is, I was going to say, this is the auditory equivalent of Yelp. Keep the suggestions uh, coming. We had a lot of good ones. I think, I think I can say this. I think Michael Chang, who won the French Open, and this is depressing, Jamie Lasanti, as you <laughs> were not yet born. Uh, Michael <laughs> Chang, 29 years ago. 29? 89? 29 years ago, the French Open champion joins us next week. We'll have a bunch more guests coming before Roland Garros. We'll do a French Open preview. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to Renee. Thanks to Jamie. And thank you for listening. Have a good week.